0: Everything that you do now in Venezuela has somehow to do with the way the country is being handled. For instance, if if you run out of milk and you have to go out and buy milk, then you have to have conversation with others about the fact that you can't get milk because you have to buy certain amount of milk a certain day of the week and because of certain political decisions that that were taken and then Everything that happens in the country happens inside of that that discourse. And you have to locate yourself somewhere in the, the political spectrum and take a position.
1: There's always a way to make the other person shut up. Shut up, you work in a ministry. Shut up, you went to a public university. Shut up, you left. Shut up, you follow the government. Shut up, you uh, receive a scholarship. You know, there's always a reason why you, you shouldn't give your opinion. You shouldn't participate. And this is not only people that will follow the government or people that are part of the government. It is something that became kind of general. You need to have a certain position to be able to speak. And now that I'm out of the country, Both parties absolutely silenced me. I really have no right of opinion, even if there are many things that I understand now that I wouldn't be able to understand if I was there.
2: Two Venezuelan women who left their country at different times for different reasons. This is Into the Deep, the Global Voices podcast where we dig deep into one topic that isn't getting the media attention it deserves. I'm Sahar, Managing Editor at Global Voices. I live right outside of San Francisco.
3: And I'm Lauren, News Editor at Global Voices. I live in Bilbao, Spain. And in this episode, we're digging deep into loss and longing outside of Venezuela.
0: Once a magnet for immigrants, Venezuelans who can flee their country. Daily protests rock Caracas.
2: Venezuela's once thriving middle class is now trapped in desperation, struggling to put food on the table.
3: Venezuela has the world's largest proven oil reserves. It was once Latin America's richest economy, but now it's a country in free fall. Food shortages, the highest inflation in the world, a raging homicide epidemic, and a hugely unpopular government that's consolidating constitutional power at the same time brutally repressing protests. Venezuela doesn't have one crisis, it has many crises, all of which are interconnected and affecting ordinary Venezuelans. As life becomes increasingly difficult for the 31 million people inside of Venezuela, we spoke to two Venezuelan women from the Global Voices community who live outside of the country. One left this year because of the crisis, And one left the country nine years ago in 2008, when Venezuela's economy was booming and its social programs were being promoted as a model for Latin America.
0: I felt that my options were very
1: limited back in Caracas. Sometimes your country of birth can limit the idea that you have of the world. You know, it's just this idea that there has to be something else that I'm not seeing. My name is Laura Vidal and I am the editor of the Latin American team of Global Voices. I am from Venezuela and I live in France. I've been living here for a while. I am also a language teacher and I am trying very hard to finish a PhD in informal learning. I've always wanted to see the world. I've always wanted to study abroad. And late 2008, I won a scholarship to study in France but it's not like many, many people that are living now that they
0: really, really didn't want to. So I spent my whole life in Venezuela up until January of this year. My name is Marianne Diaz and I'm originally from Venezuela. I'm from a little town in the middle of Venezuela, which is called Altagracia de Orituco. And I'm currently based in Santiago de Chile. I graduated from college in 2007. From that very day, like my friends started already leaving the country. Like Migration has been a really big issue in, in Venezuela for the last 10, 15 years. My boyfriend wanted to leave the country at that point, and I didn't want to leave the country. I had never wanted to actually leave the country up until 2014, like we had <laughs> this discussion for all these years and I always said no. I joined GVE as a volunteer for the Advox project in 2010 and I have been writing for the Advox project and for the main site and I also have translated for the Lingua project since then. And I am in Santiago de Chile working as a public policy officer for the digital rights NGO called Derechos Digitales, which is a Chilean NGO that works on digital rights on Latin America. I grew up in a little town in Venezuela, kind of rural and urban town, like it has a, a mix in, in between those two things. And when I was grow, growing up it was like a very quiet place, very tranquil place to live. My mom used to drive me uh, to school every day and to pick me up, and I used to hang out with my friends after school in the afternoons. In in the house where I used to live, where, where my family still lives, we had this huge backyard filled with trees, different fruit trees, and, and I used to play there. and and just hang out there and read books. I read a lot. And it was a very calm place, like a a, a quiet, tranquil life. I lived there up until I started going to college, and I had to move to a bigger city because in my town there were no universities. My family was very, very nervous about me going to college because I was this sheltered little girl and the little one, we are three sisters, and so they had feeling that I wasn't prepared to be an adult and to live in the city. But I went to college in, in the city called Valencia, and I started working there. So I spent most of the rest of my adult life there between Valencia and Caracas, which is the capital city in Venezuela. That was up until I left.
1: I grew up in a city called Maracay, which is uh, the capital of a state called Aragua. It's a big city. um, And I grew up in a fairly calm, a bit protected part of the town. Now that I look back, my childhood was very privileged in comparison to many people that had a lot of limitations. We also had a lot of struggles, but I was able to grow up. I had a fairly stable life, if you will. I could go to school. I stayed in one town all the time. I could go to university. And growing up there was, well, socially, if you will, it can be quite particular with all the cultural elements, and the telenovelas and the obsession with beauty that Venezuela has. It's a very nice, beautiful experience, particularly in my town, because there's a big variety of people. My city is a city full of people coming from countries like Lebanon and Syria, and uh, there's a big Chinese community, a lot of uh, people coming from Colombia, a lot of migration from the south. So. I wasn't really aware of that when I was there, but now that I'm a migrant myself and that I see all the movements of people that come to a place for, for different reasons, I realized that we were quite rich in terms of the people that were uh, making our town their town as well. A lot of the people that went to Venezuela, they were fleeing a lot of things, you know, people coming from the Middle East, whether they were from Lebanon or Syria, they were fleeing the war. A lot of people from the south, the deep south of South America, Argentinians, Uruguayans, Chileans, they they were fleeing awful dictatorships. Colombians were fleeing the violence of their own civil war and the narco terrorism. What they found in Venezuela mostly was peace, peace and opportunity. This was a country with a lot of money and basically the conditions for you to do something with your life. The country was functioning in such a way that it could welcome people. And I think that happened mainly because it was a country that was fairly in peace in comparison to these other countries.
0: I vividly remember the election uh, of Hugo Chavez in 1999, which changed radically the, the environment, the political environment of the country. I think I was maybe 14, 15 years old, and I distinctly remember that I was opposed to to him being elected, and I supported uh, another candidate. And I was very mad about not being able to vote at that time. That election really made a turning point of when people started to become more aware of certain things, but also when politics became something that was embedded in everything. And it has been that way since then.
1: I was finishing high school, preparing for university. I was 18 years old. And I remember a lot of fear. I remember people that were pro-Chavez asking me if I was if I was uh, in Spanish, the word is compatriota. So implying that if I wasn't with the government, I was not Venezuelan. And that kind of discourse became deeper and deeper.
2: In Venezuela, politics is polarized into two camps, the Chavistas, the followers of the socialist policies of the late president Hugo Chavez, and those who cannot wait to see an end to the 18 years in power of his United Socialist Party
1: you know Chavismo is a phenomenon that came out of huge social inequalities and even if somebody like me who's who's comes from the middle class and went to university and so on I could think of my life before the the so-called Bolivarian Revolution as being better but I'm very sure that a lot lot of people wouldn't see it that way there are a lot of systems that are free and available, like public education, indeed. But it's not the case everywhere, and it's not the case for everyone. I didn't have to pay for college because I went to a private school. Most people going to public schools are not able to pass the exams to get to the, the public university. There's a big narrative saying uh, that before Chavez, people were happy and they didn't know, That they actually realized how happy be they were because before the crisis, but the thing is that we had a big percentage of people living in slums. A big percentage of women being pregnant when they were 15. And a lot of people today say that they they long for the Venezuela they had before. But the Venezuelans before is the one that created the Venezuela we have today.
3: So how did Venezuelans go from belonging to Latin America's richest country To one where food scarcity is so severe that three in four amongst them have lost an average of 19 pounds in a year? The story is, well, complicated, but we'll do our best to break it down a bit. The charismatic Hugo Chavez came into power in 1999 on a campaign that blamed corruption and poverty, which were serious issues, on Venezuela's elite. He came from a middle-class family and was a former military man. His populist message resonated with the poor, but it did not resonate with the country's elite, who had been running the show for decades and had strong ties with the West. Chavez portrayed these elites as the enemy trying to sell Venezuelan interests. While in office, he made bold foreign policy shifts, such as aligning with Cuba and arming Colombian insurgents. This angered military leaders In 2001, Chávez issued a series of executive decrees that business and political elite opposed, and their outrage swelled into protests outside the presidential palace. When Chávez ordered the military to restore order, they arrested him instead, dissolved the constitution and legislature, and installed an interim leader. But counter-protests quickly returned Chávez to power. He now had much more support from the masses, much more disdain for the elites, and was intent on holding on to power.
2: After the military and police let him down, Chavez started to build an alliance of convenience with armed groups known as colectivos. With funneled money and arms from the state, the colectivos became political enforcers. Protesters learned to fear them. They arrived on Chinese-made motorcycles to disperse protesters, often lethally. The colectivos grew in power. In 2005, they expelled the police from the capital, Caracas. At the same time, Chavez turned his focus to the backbone of Venezuela's economy, the state-run oil firm Petróleos de Venezuela. He had long denounced the firm for its associations with business elites and the United States. Chavez fired 18,000 of the firm's workers, many of them skilled technicians and managers, and replaced them with some 100,000 Chavistas. Two years later, in 2004, a boom in oil prices allowed Venezuela's petroleum-dependent economy to surge. Chavez directed billions from the company's profits to social welfare programs, food subsidies, health, and education. By 2008, the year Laura left for France, Chavez had reduced poverty in his country by half.
3: But as more money from Petróleos de Venezuela was pumped into social programs, the oil company itself was not doing well. Production dropped despite a global boom in oil prices. The injury rate more than tripled. In 2012, a refinery exploded, killing at least 40 people and causing $1.7 billion in damage. And in 2011, 500 million from a company pension fund found its way into a pyramid scheme run by government-linked financiers, none of whom faced prosecution. After promising to take on corrupt elite, critics said Chavez had merely established his own. In 2013, Chavez died, and a year later oil prices nosedived. His handpicked successor, Nicolas Maduro, failed to adjust to the plummeting oil prices. The government continued to pour money it did not have into social programs, triggering hyperinflation making medicine and food, which was once subsidized, unaffordable for Venezuela's poor, who now represent 8 out of every 10 people in the country. Unlike
2: Chavez, Maduro is not popular. He's been tightening his grip on power and the economy and has exploited a complex currency system that was put in place by Chavez. Let me explain. The official exchange rate for local currency to the dollar is 10 to 1. But only Maduro's friends and allies have access to that rate. The rest of the country has to go to the black market to buy money, where the exchange rate as of August 31st, is more than 20,000 to one. To make matters worse, Maduro gave the military complete control of food supplies in 2016. They are reportedly profiting off of the currency crisis. They import food off the official rate but then sell it at black market rates. Military generals and his friends benefit from Maduro's position, while ordinary Venezuelans are standing in lines for hours to buy food rations that aren't enough to feed their families. Many only earn the minimum monthly wage, which is officially $27, but unofficially $12. In this pressure cooker environment, Maduro is tightening his grip on power. His government has brutally repressed protests, killing more than 100 people this year. Currently, there are over 590 political prisoners. Most of them are being tried by military courts for treason against the homeland. And Maduro has designed a constitutional amendment and election to keep himself in office.
0: The basic products are price regulated. You can only go buy them on a certain day of the week, depending on your uh, national ID number. For instance, so I can only buy those groceries on Wednesdays. And then you have to go on a queue, like a very long queue. You have to stand there for hours and hours. You can only buy a certain amount of those products, for instance. You can only buy a kilogram of flour, A month per person. The the situation with electricity and running water and basic services is on and off, and that depends on when you live in the country. But for instance, where I was living in Valencia, uh, I only had running water three hours a day. I lived there for the last three years. And I only had running water from 6 a.m. to 7 a.m., from noon to 1 p.m., and from 8 p.m. to 9 p.m every single day for three years that I lived there. If you have to take a shower, then you have to think about what time of the day you're going to have running water. If you have, for instance, run a washing machine, then you have to think about how much the cycle is going to last and what time are you going to put the washing machine because if you have to be home at 8 p.m in order to be able to run the washing machine or or to take a shower or whatever. That's the way it seeps into everything. When I left, it was a particularly hard moment because in November, December last year, the government tried to withdraw from circulation part of bills that we were using, and then we didn't have cash in order to perform transactions that were in cash only. And so it really created big chaos. It's really hard to go f- to a doctor and to pay with a card because you usually don't have the machines for that. And so you have to pay cash. And I was under treatment in November, December, and I had to stop going to the doctor because I wasn't able to find physical cash in order to be able to pay. To the doctor. Right now, the inflation is so high that you can't withdraw enough money in order to uh, be able to cover certain expenses for like maybe one, two days, because the maximum amount that an, that an ATM will give you will only be enough for a coffee or, or to pay for a cab, and then you will have to <laughs> withdraw money all, all over again. And so the thing about uh, living right now in Venezuela. Up until last December when I was there, it was that everything that you were going to do, that everything you, that you tried to do was it uh, going to work or going to the movies or, or, or meeting friends for coffee? Everything was extremely hard. You have to go through so many loops in order to be able to accomplish something very, very small. So you end up like every time, every single day, you end up exhausted of just trying to survive.
3: How were the restrictions introduced? Was it just overnight or has it always been this way or did it incrementally get worse and worse and worse?
0: About the food, it has been an accumulation of measures. I cannot pinpoint the exact day when when food started to be scarce has happened gradually and then the measures that they have imposed in order to uh, quote-unquote fight those those those, those issues of scarcity have been getting incrementally worse as well. You could only buy six of something and it only affected certain products and then after that They incorporated this this thing where you can only buy a certain day of the week, and then after that, they introduced uh, fingerprint machines where you have to scan your fingerprint in order to be able to buy. When you try to remember how things were like six years, seven years ago, and you realize that it was already bad. Like, for instance, it was already hard to find milk. It's like you are inside a, a boiling pot of water. You can't pinpoint exactly the moment, like the, the water starts boiling.
3: What was it like when you first moved to Chile and you were set up in your new place or wherever you first landed, and you, you know, took that uh, that breath? I'm here. What was that moment like?
0: It's been weird. like Every single day, it has been weird. The first week after I landed, I started working right away. I didn't really give myself time to mourn the the experience, everything that uh, I might feel like I lost. After the first month, the first thing that I noticed was that I had so much room available in my brain, it was really weird, all space in my mind that was being occupied by following the tracks of when the water was going to come in and when I was going to be able to wash the clothes to do the mental maths of uh, hunting for medicines. and when this food is going to end up, then I have to call someone to, who could find me. And all that mental math I was having to do in order to survive was gone because if I, I am here, and so if I want milk, I just go and buy milk, and that's all, and I don't have to think about that. And after that, like this sort of post-traumatic stress when it's 9 p.m. and then I jump in my bed because I have to collect water. We are going to—they are going to cut the water, so I have to collect water. And then I notice that I don't have to collect water because they are not going to cut the water. And uh, for instance, if I listen a noise in the street and I think it's gunshot, and it's not because that's nothing that happened here. And so all of those, those things keep happening. And I I just try to to grapple with that feeling because, at the same time, all that mental space that is released from not having to think about all these things that are just basic survival, that mental space can be used. I used to be a fiction writer, and I stopped writing about four years ago because I didn't have nor the time, nor the energy, nor the mental space, to be able to do that. And I started writing again after I I came to Santiago, and I started uh, drawing and and painting again.
1: One of the readings I had the time and the distance to do that were really good for me were readings about um, the history of Venezuela, to learn that the country was born not out of this War of Independence, which is the, the main narrative, you know, the I guess equivalent of the American Founding Fathers and and this sort of characters that became almost religiously adored and and what Simon Bolívar did and everything. I, I could finally understand that what started Venezuela was actually a civil war. I finally understood why was it that poor peasants and black people that were enslaved they were fighting for the king and those fighting for independence and these beautiful ideals of liberty and so on they were white and high class and they owned land the idea of Venezuela was born out of social division and I feel that that shadow is still there today of course we have what we have now of course we have leaders that what they're trying to do is to find things for themselves and dehumanizing absolutely the rest of the people so they can just take whatever they want. That's also really telling of part of the culture. And I don't think this is exclusive of Venezuela. To be able to go on with the conflict, you really need to dehumanize the other. And to be able to do it so quickly, you really need to come from a long tradition of doing it. So I could understand how much we hated ourselves. That's not pretty to say. And, you know, understanding that this idea of development and culture is something that comes from abroad. We share this history with so many countries. But understanding the idea that we really need to make our history for ourselves and not always trying to copy or go against some other models. I understood a lot of things about the dynamics of men and women. I became a lot more in touch with feminism and how it works, because back there I had no clue. I discovered this beautiful network of feminists, Venezuelan feminists, that I had no idea they existed, and I found them online in France. I also became aware of the fact that when you come from a country that that has a big crisis, you cannot have the luxury of embracing the fact that you're a citizen of the world. You just can't. You cannot forget that, that you come from a place, that place needs you in some way or another. And it it is true, and that's part of the learning process, that you are your nationality and the identity they give you. That's part of who you are, but it's not all you are. And it's part of a lot of discourse and a little bit of manipulation. But again, when that part of your identity is in crisis, it's just so it's really impossible to ignore. Not only you feel it present all the time, people will always remind you that in all places. The second I say I'm Venezuelan, I am the face of the crisis. I am a possible ambassador. I have to explain what is going on or I get a lot of explanations from people that think that I don't understand my own country. So I I get a lot of perspective, not only of Venezuela, of my life in Venezuela, of Latin America in general, and
0: also friends. Everyone, pretty much everyone I have spoken to outside of the country, are leaving the situation with mixed emotions of relief and guilt, because we feel that that it's good that we are safe, but also that we can't do enough from abroad. And so we try, I don't know, we try to send money to our families, we try to send medicines, we try to write about what is happening, but at the same time, we feel that we are not doing enough. And there's also that discourse coming from inside of the country, like there are people that outright say to us that we we left and so we are basically cowards for living. This is actually the
1: first time that I talk about Venezuela with my own voice, because I, I never dare to answer invitations or to to talk about things. I guess I tried a couple of, of times with Al Jazeera, but then when I was invited to talk like in the stream and so on, I prefer to say no again because it, it's been a long time since I left. even. People from my own family and friends, they talk to me as if I was a foreigner. They explain things to me as if I didn't know. i making the other feel unworthy of having the nationality because they left. The more the time passes, the more I lose my right to talk about my country. Even if I have a lot of things to say, of course, like any other Venezuelan. I guess I've become passionate in amplifying what people are saying. I feel safer doing that, I guess what's sad in this whole story is that this silencing thing it works it works in somebody that has studied a lot that has a lot of confidence in her ideas that is surrounded by a community of co-workers and friends that always stimulate ideas and and they have very creative ways of, of seeing things but still it really can get to you when you see violence in discourse and the way that you can so easily be silenced i think that at the end it just it works. If you don't follow the, the revolution, you're not Venezuelan. You know, you're out. You you don't love your people, you don't love your country. And I guess that this has evolved in a really sad and dark way. Because it it has grown deeper and it's the discourse of both camps. There's always a way to put you out of the conversation. Either because you left the country, either because you're not in the right side, either because you're not aware of certain things, either because you did this or that, you know, there, there's always a way to silence the other. That is something that has become really palpable in this process. There's always a way to make the other person shut up. Shut up, you work in a ministry. Shut up, you went to a public university. Shut up, you left. Uh, shut up, you follow the government. Shut up, you uh, received uh, a scholarship. You know, there's always a reason why you you, sh- you shouldn't give your opinion, you shouldn't participate. And this is not only people that will follow the government or people that are part of the government. This, this is something that became kind of general. You need to have a certain position to be able to speak. And now that I'm out of the country, both parties absolutely silenced me. I really have no right of opinion even if there are many things that I understand now that I wouldn't be able to understand if I
0: was there. So I try to be somewhat aware of what is happening in Chile and in the rest of the world, but my days happen in Venezuela. Like, I I work with a tab in the Explorer that is just either Facebook or Twitter, and just everything that's happening in real time. And then I come home, and I say to my, ro- to my roommate, did you see what happened today? And then we speak about everything that happened today in Venezuela. And so I think that that my mind is there, basically. And that's the only way I can handle the situation right now, because my family is still there. My boyfriend is still there. And so that's, like, the, my top concern right now is the situation in Venezuela. I can't separate myself from them.
1: These diasporas are not like the ones before. I know things before my mom tells me. I tell her not to go places because I saw it here. And with the media blockade, it's even worse, you know. I remember when Chavez died. My mom called me the next day to tell me, and I already knew. Contexts are so different now. There are many things that become visible through media that were invisible when I was there.
2: So people yeah. forget that people are living lives even within that conflict and there's beauty in those lives and there's happiness. And
1: That's absolutely important. That's really important and I, I agree 100% because I talk to my mom for hours on the phone uh, and we share videos and books. And like I talk to my parents a lot and 90% of what we talk about has nothing to do with the crisis, absolutely nothing. It's all about my mom discovering yoga, and how she goes to the square to walk, and the dog just feels sick. And how she became really passionate about reading The Handmaid's Tale, <laughs> so she you knows things that really have nothing to do with it. Um, I think that's very important. And I think that um, that's also something that I, that it's important to underline also in new media, because there's a lot of people doing something you know they're they're doing things other than trying to find food or protesting even if these things are taking more and more, more space there's there are very few spaces that don't talk about the crisis and they don't talk about the protests and so on but things still happen one of my best friends just she wrote a theater piece and she's presenting it there's people just organizing to have hikes together and try to take over the streets from criminality, for example. Uh, things are changing in terms of participation and how people just don't let their lives being taken away by the crisis. You no, know, it's still joke. Dance. I, I guess it's a day that Venezuela will absolutely die. Is a day that people will stop dancing or partying or just being loud. That, and you can see that in the protests. A lot of people just play instruments in them, and they chant things, and they dance along. It's it's just part of the spirit. I see that even when I'm trying to talk about something else, I would go back to the crisis. I guess it's it's inevitable.
0: I think that everything is out of the narratives that people abroad have about Venezuela right now, because these people who are fighting inside of the country and the people who are even abroad, that are trying to do things about the country. They are, for me, the definition of what Venezuela is. These extremely talented people who are very resilient and who don't give up. And so things like, for instance, the Simon Bolivar Orchestra that is the the people abroad called The System, El Sistema. These people who teach impoverished children to play instrument and to play classical music. And we have amazing cartoonists who are right now doing things to portray the current situation, and humorists who are doing amazing work to try to reflect how we are living this incredibly awful situation without losing our sense of humor, which is what makes us us what makes me most concerned and what what makes me saddest about the way that people outside of Venezuela talk to me about the situation and the way that they approach the situation with this like I was saying, this this sadness and this pity is that we cannot really portray for others that we are not a sad country, that we are a happy place. Even right now, now I mean, the situation is really dire, and there there are these awful rates of of depression and and suicide and all of those things, but there is this strength. That really lies in a hard happiness. It's like we are furiously happy. We try to keep being that way in spite of everything else. So we make jokes about things that shouldn't be joked about because that's who we are. I really want that the day comes when we can again have this image about the happiest country in Latin America that we used to have, because right now it's like we I feel that we go around uh, with this gray cloud of ourselves, like uh, saddening, saddening everyone else with this really overwhelming situation, and that none no of us feel comfortable about that, because we are used to be the people who bring the joy to the party, you know? so that's what i want for us like that that's what i want for other people to know us as we really are as these strong happy people
3: can you describe a little bit what specific things give you hope
0: i think that if we ever had a chance to change things uh, for the better it is right now and it's I think that this is very tangible in the way that people in the streets are fighting. Um, in the, the fact that so many people understand that the fight is is peaceful and that the struggle is is peaceful and it, it is democratic. And there is a new generation of of political leadership that were very, very young people when, when this whole thing started, because they have my age right now. And so they are the beauties and they are majors right now. And so they are at the front of the protests. And I, I think that finally there, there are people who really can represent what we want for our country. And so that makes me hopeful. It's, it's a small hope, it's not like a massive hope, but, but I think that the country can recover, and, and I think that there are the tools to recover the country.
3: And do you have, looking toward the future, plans to return to Venezuela?
0: I hope so. I, I would like to be there in order to fight for the return of democracy, but that was not possible. I have the feeling that I wasn't strong enough for that. I really hope that at least the political situation can change, if, I, if at least the political situation can change and we, we can have free elections and, I don't know, democracy can return, and then I will go back because I, I want to help rebuild the country.
1: If there's one thing I believe is necessary, is that I and also if there's one reason why I chose to study education it was because of Venezuela so of course my plans are there and and I'm pretty sure I will find a way to make them work.
2: That brings us to the end of this episode of Into the Deep. If you want to dig deeper into the perspectives from people in Venezuela, visit globalvoices.org slash specialcoverage slash what dash
3: is dash happening dash in dash Venezuela slash. This is a podcast of Global Voices, an international network of passionate people who keep tabs on the online conversations happening in their regions. Our 1,400 mostly volunteer writers, editors, and translators Cover stories from 167 countries and translate them into more than 30 languages. Together, we've been building bridges of understanding, as we like to call them, through our digital reporting since 2005. Our organization is a nonprofit and is powered by our community. Both Mariane and Laura, the women we spoke to in this episode, are community representatives on the Global Voices Board.
2: The inspiring work of our Global Voices authors, translators, and editors made this episode possible, so a big thank you to all of you out there. If you like what you heard, please share this episode on Facebook and Twitter. In this episode, we featured Creative Commons licensed music from the Free Music Archive, including Demonus and Scenery by Kay Engel, Bathe in Fine Dust by Andy Cohen, and A Mutiny by Poddington Bear. Thanks for coming along with us into the deep. We'll have a new episode for you soon, until then.